Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Traders, welcome to the show. This is episode 192. Similar to the last episode with Nishant Porbandawala, this episode also has a relevant focus on current events. As we've seen making headlines recently, reserve banks of numerous countries have been adding liquidity to the market in an effort to stabilise economies. While some listeners will already understand exactly how reserve banks conduct these operations, I figure there will be many others, myself included, who don't completely grasp what takes place below the surface. To get clarity on the subject, I kindly asked Kevin Muir to appear on Chat with Traders for a second time and to explain the actions of reserve banks during this market downturn. Because in my opinion, Kevin has a gift for analysing and explaining complex subjects in a way which is easy to follow. Kevin was a derivatives trader for a Canadian bank during the 90s and has been an independent trader from 2000 onward. He also writes a brilliant financial newsletter, The Macro Tourist, and co-hosts The Market Huddle podcast. For links to his newsletter, podcast, as well as our first interview, check the show notes at chatwithtraders.com slash 192. Kevin, before we get into your thoughts and your perspectives too much on what's happening, let's just get some clarity about what's actually taking place. Now, one of the things which has been making headlines, um, not only in the US, but Australia, Europe, etc., is central banks injecting liquidity into the market. So one of the questions I'd like to start things with is what exactly happens when a reserve bank adds liquidity into the market? Well, Aaron, they can do it through a variety of different methods. The most common one is they actually go out and buy securities. And if you go look at the Federal Reserve, they announce... um, they actually announced on Friday the, the schedule for the rest of the week of what they were going to buy. And you'll see that uh, today for Monday, March 30th, at 9.30 to 9.50, they were going to buy coupons, treasury coupons from the 7 to 20-year sector for $6 billion. 
Then at 1020 to 1040, they were going to buy the four and a half to seven year sector for 11 billion and so on and so on. So the way they actually do this operation is that they go out, they announce to the marketplace that they're going to, they're looking for $6 billion of these securities. Then they go talk to the primary dealers and they tell them to submit their offers and the primary dealers send in a list at that scheduled time. And then the Fed actually just lifts their offers. They actually buy it. So the primary dealer was holding this in inventory and they're no longer holding it in inventory. And in a lot of ways, it's that simple. They're buying the assets from the marketplace that the marketplace is having trouble financing and warehousing. So what's an example of a primary dealer? Like who would that be? It would be a JP Morgan or like um, Royal Bank, I believe, is a, is a, a primary dealer. Even though we're Canadian, we're a primary dealer. They're basically just very uh, kind of senior banks that deal directly with the Fed. And why would someone like JP Morgan or whoever the other primary dealers might be, why would they actually want to sell to the Fed? Well, they're selling to the Fed because they're making markets in these securities all the time. And not only that, it is their job to go and to facilitate the trades of the Fed. Just like it's their job to bid on the securities when the treasury is auctioning securities, they're actually obligated to bid for a certain amount. It is their their duty to actually help the Fed conduct these operations. Someone has to trade with the Fed. They can't just go out and, and buy directly from the clients. They're basically a middleman between the clients and the Federal Reserve. Interestingly enough, Aaron, that uh, the Fed is buying so much right now that the, for the first time ever, I was talking to a tips trader that was telling me that the Fed was trying to buy six or seven billion dollars of tips, and the primary dealers only offered them four point seven. They were they literally ran out of inventory to offer to the Federal Reserve, and that's what that's the one thing I just would like people to kind of understand is. The level and the speed upon which they're doing these purchases is completely unprecedented. They announced two weeks ago that they were going to do $700 billion of quantitative easing, and they left it open. They said it was going to be over a period of uh, a couple months, but they didn't say that they couldn't stagger some more at the beginning. And so what they did was they went and looked at the, the state of the market, and they, just, they got a feel for how much they needed to do. Well, they literally went through that $700 billion in the first week. They are buying uh, the equivalent of, in, of a 2008 quantitative easing. It used to be um, basically 60 to $80 billion. I can't remember the exact number. They were doing that every day for the past two weeks. The stack of blue tickets on the Federal Reserve's desk is monstrous. And then there's other ways as well that they can provide liquidity to the market. One of the most interesting things that they've done is that they've done these swap lines where they actually go and provide U.S. dollars to other central banks. They did this in 2008. They did it to the, I can't remember, I think there's four standard banks that they do it with. It's Bank of Canada, ECB, Bank of England, and I don't know, I'm not sure who else it is, but uh, they go and they provide these uh, a kind of liquidity, these U.S. dollar liquidity to just free up the system. Well, there was such a demand for U.S. dollars at this time that they expanded their counterparties to 10 different banks, central banks. 
And this was all in an attempt to try to help the world economy that was in desperate need of U.S. dollars to provide the liquidity that no one else could provide. Uh, you did say something in your answer there. You spoke about uh, tips. What, what are tips? Tips are treasury inflation protected securities. They're just another form of uh, government security. So the Fed, not only do they buy regular government bonds, but they also buy treasury uh, inflation protected securities. Okay. And what is the goal that the Fed is trying to accomplish by doing this? Their goal is to try to make the system have enough kind of liquidity so that it begins to operate correctly again. See, what happens is that there's basically not enough money in the system because credit is being contracted and basically there's, there's not enough chips to go around. So therefore, it ends up being this kind of game of whack-a-mole that, you know, one person whacks it and then the, it comes up again and they try to whack it again. And, and it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where the, the credit current contraction of selling causes the value to go down, which then means that more people have to sell. And so what they're trying to do is provide enough liquidity to stop that kind of, um, that kind of reinforcing uh, kind of spiral. And what they do is they take all the securities that they can that the, the, from the dealer's bank balance sheets that they're having trouble financing and having trouble owning so that the dealers can buy other things that are more risky. So the goal is to try to make it so that these banks, the JP Morgans of the world, don't need to worry about financing treasuries and don't need to worry about that. And they can go out and they can buy the more risky securities that basically the Fed should not be buying. Because at the end of the day, the Fed is supposed to buy only government securities. Now it is being blend. It is being kind of, uh, kind of. Let us just say it's it's changing this time. In, in 2008, there was the TARP program, and there was some different things. And the Fed got in trouble because they blurred the lines of what they were allowed to buy. And then Congress went and they actually tied their hands again. But in this case, what's happened is the Treasury's gone and actually um, taken a role where they've worked hand in hand with the Fed so that the Fed can buy corporate bonds, but the Treasury takes the first loss so that the Fed is in essence still taking the government risk and it's a riskless security for the for the Federal Reserve. Because the Federal Reserve is not supposed to be trying to pick which countries which countries, sorry, which companies should survive and which shouldn't. They shouldn't be sitting there going, I'm gonna buy GE paper, but I'm not gonna buy Boeing paper. They that's not their goal. Their goal is to provide liquidity for the system. Now, unfortunately, what happened was because there was this, you know, terrible virus and because nobody wanted to own any securities, the government was forced to go and say, no, we're going to backstop investment grade paper as well. Meaning investment grade is the kind of higher grade corporate paper, you know, bonds. And so what they did was the Fed found a way working hand in hand with the Treasury to actually buy corporate paper. Can you just explain what corporate paper is? Okay, so that's like uh, GE or Boeing or Microsoft or Apple issues bonds and those bonds trade in the open market and that would be an example of corporate paper. Investment grade has to do with the ratings attached to that uh, bond and generally that's considered the, the higher quality companies. And then it goes from there, it goes into high yield or junk, 
which is anything below triple B. And that is kind of what the Fed said. We're not going to buy any of that, but we're going to buy investment grade paper. Okay. So how come they were doing that this time? Like why, why this time? Because the market became so dysfunctional and that there was nobody willing to buy it that the Fed needed to backstop it. Now, is this, correct me if I misunderstood you here, but when you were talking earlier, it sounds as though the Fed comes in with all these billions to buy back government bonds. And they might do so from a primary dealer such as JP Morgan, which frees up um, some capital with JP Morgan, which then allows them to go and purchase more risky assets if necessary. Right. Or to, to make room for the, the, their balance sheet for the assets that they, that they need to hold. Either way, it's just, it's just helping the system in terms of providing liquidity to the system. Okay. So in this case, what happens if the Fed announces that they're injecting $700 billion worth of uh, liquidity into the market? What do they do when they don't get the reaction that was intended? I don't remember exactly which date it was, but I think it was a a Sunday evening when the E-mini came back online and they must have announced it shortly after or just after the open and it instantly went limit down. Right. Well, first of all, I would argue that the Fed does not care about the stock market. Well, they, they care, but that's not their primary goal. They are more interested in the functioning of the credit markets. The stock market is something that they watch out of the corner of their eye, and it's obviously important as a signal. But really, what, what, what kind of lit the fire under their, their, their ass in terms of actually doing stuff was when the credit market started breaking. And that's when they decided that, nope, we got to get in there and we have to do it. Because... If the credit markets start breaking, then everything else just falls to the wayside really quickly. And this is one of the things that I would like to stress for, you know, when investors are thinking about this environment and they're thinking about the different opportunities there are after this huge sell-off in, um, you know, from the virus. And they see guys like um, Mark Lazary from Avenue Capital or uh, Seth Klarman um, going out and actually raising money to go out and buy assets. One of the things that I, I want them to probably understand is that these guys are probably not buying the equity. What they are buying, more often than not, are these distressed bonds that are high quality bonds that are trading at levels that are just wrong. And so one of the things that you have to just keep in the back of your mind is that some of the smartest guys out there are actually seeing the opportunities today and and actually committing capital, but the opportunities are not in the equity market. They're actually in the corporate market. Let's just take a step back there. You said that the Fed is not so concerned about the actual stock market, more so about the credit market. So when you talk about the credit market, are you referring to uh, the government bonds? The, cr- the credit market is both government bonds and also corporate bonds. Okay. It's bonds of all sort. It's also money market. It's just all, all the functioning, the day-to-day functioning of the kind of 
uh, the credit that goes back and forth between companies and and the the cash flows and the financing of commercial paper and and the financing of the government's balance sheet. It's all that is infinitely more important than the equity market. Right. So you said that the Fed wasn't so concerned about the stock market breaking down. It was more about the credit market breaking down. So what I mean, most of us listening to this know what it looks like when the stock market breaks down. What does it look like when the credit market begins to break down? Well, the first thing you'll notice is that securities that are not on, like what are called off the run, meaning that there's a standard bond that everybody trades that's the most recent bond. But then there's the other ones, the ones that were previously auctioned. And those usually trade at a slight discount to the on the run because there's less liquidity. Well, all of a sudden, investors couldn't sell those at all. So that's called the, the spread between the on the run and off the run bonds. And that was a trade that, for example, in 1998, that long-term capital had on. You know, they would go buy the 29 and a half year bond and sell the 30 year bond. And eventually that spread would go, you know, back into line, but they would have to hold it for a little while. Well, those spreads, those kind of trades started blowing out, meaning that they, you know, whereas they usually would trade at a 20 uh, you know, basis point difference, they started trading at 100 basis point difference. And then you would see things like high yield um, and, and corporate spreads, meaning the price that a corporation has to pay versus the government bond. So if the government borrows money at one and an investment grade borrows money at three, that would be called a 200-point credit spread, meaning that you have to pay 200 extra over the government. Well, those spreads went from, you know, I think that, let's just have a look here. I, I have this written down. Let me grab it. The aggregate corporate spread went from 100 basis points, and then it went to 365 in the space of two weeks. That's just, like, that's unheard of. The high yield went from 350 basis points to 1,100 basis points. So whereas you had you know, companies that used to be able to borrow money at 5%, they now all of a sudden had to pay 13%. It was, it's that sort of moves that you imagine if you're all of a sudden you're going and your mortgage is floating and they tell you it's gone up by 800 basis points in the space of two weeks. That's the sort of stress and that causes the system to really get into trouble because it ends up being that without that the kind of those with those spreads blowing out like that, the the whole the whole thing starts kind of unraveling. Just going back to the question I asked you a little earlier, what does a the Fed or you know any reserve bank for that matter, what do they do if their injection of liquidity doesn't have the intended reaction and um, has it had the intended reaction this far? Well, I, I would say that when they uh, announced the first one, like when they've, because don't forget, they've done two QEs so far. They did the first one, which was $700 billion, and now they came back with the QE Unlimited, which is basically no amount and we will do whatever it takes. The first one, the $700 billion, they didn't tie their hands about how much they would buy every day. They left it open-ended. And I think that they went into the market, they bought it, and they realized how much was for sale, and they upped the amount that they were going to buy. So when you ask, what does the Fed do when it doesn't have the reaction that it's intended, they do more. 
So they realize that the system, they don't know the right number because they don't understand the stresses like that well in terms of like the specific how much it's going to take to fix it. So they're always kind of feeling their way along, buying some, seeing what's happening to spreads, see what happens, buying some more tomorrow. And they do that. So in fact, I would say that the first one didn't have the effect that they wanted it to have because they were forced to come back with the second one, which was QE unlimited with the extra swap lines and, and the corporate paper. So that's the long and short of it is that when, a, when it doesn't have the results that, that they are intended, they do more. And this is an important part, Aaron, to think about is that a lot of people will think to themselves, oh, the Fed's going to run out of money. The Fed can never run out of money. It is, they are the issuer of the, you know, the government is the issuer of the currency. Theoretically, they could buy every bond on offer if they wanted to. And, and so when you're thinking about shorting against this and thinking to yourself, oh, you know what, the, the Fed's going to stop and the Fed's going to run out of money or they're going to, this isn't going to work. I always say, be very careful about that idea because the Fed could literally just keep buying and buying and buying and buying. There's nothing even stopping them from buying stocks if we change the rules that we, um, that we operate under. That is a self-imposed rule, meaning that the, the Congress has told the Fed that they can't buy stocks. But in other countries, central banks are allowed to buy stocks. Japan, they're buying stocks. And in fact, in Switzerland, they're buying U.S. stocks. So imagine a situation where it gets really bad and the virus continues to kind of, I don't know, let's, you know, make society unstable. And one of the worries is that, the, you know, that the, we're having a financial crisis. I could envision a, a, a world where the Fed starts buying S&P 500s. It's, it's not, you know, out of the realm of possibility. And there's nothing fundamentally stopping them because they are the issuer of the credit. They can just, they can just you know, debit one side and credit the other. And it's as simple as that. They're just entries in a computer. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What are the negative effects of central banks having an unlimited supply of money? And also, are there negative effects of them actually intervening in capital markets? 
Well, Aaron, some people will say that, you know, the hard money guys that think that it should be, we should be on a gold standard would argue that there's tons of negative effects and that this is the reason that we're in this predicament is because the Fed keeps intervening and in, in doing this. I don't know if I buy that, um, that argument, but I will say that the, without the Fed, we would have a situation where we would have had more deflationary bus. Now you might argue that that's what the system needs. The system needs kind of a, a cleansing deflationary bust. I would argue that the, it would actually have caused um, massive kind of unemployment and it might, might've cleansed the system, but it would have been very painful. So it's, it, you know, it's a tough philosophical thing that comes down to what, how you, what you believe money is and how it should operate and, and who is it, who's the benefit for and, and what is the, what is the goal of the federal reserve is the federal reserve there to try to maximize employment or is the federal reserve there trying to maximize the, or maintain the value of the dollar? So as we've been talking about here, uh, central banks adding liquidity into the marketplace, is this something which just takes place on an ongoing basis, you know, week after week, um, and it normally doesn't make the headlines? Um, Like, is this something which happens regularly anyway? Um, It's normally just on a smaller scale. So there was a time when the Federal Reserve... uh, basically didn't announce any of their changes and would execute a monetary policy by intervening in the market and buying or selling T-bills. And I remember a time, uh, you know, I'm, I'm showing my age, but that you would have to wait till 1145 and you would go watch for them and you would see what they did. And if they conducted operations, you could see that they had changed the rate of, um, of the interest rates through their op- open market operations. So to answer your question is that it used to be that the Fed was constantly buying and selling uh, T-bills to maintain the rate that, that they were trying to uh, kind of target. Then what happened is in 2008, when we had the great financial crisis, we basically hit the zero bound and then that changed the way that the whole system operates and we went to a system with interest on excess reserves. And during that period, with, with, when the government, when the Fed can actually just set the rate and basically have a savings account that the that the primary dealers use, then there's no need for them to op- to buy and sell uh, kind of securities on a regular basis. Now, having said that, don't forget that they had run up their uh, balance sheet in the QE one, two, and three under Bernanke, and then it was actually they were trying to wind that down under Powell when he first came in. That was what the, the taper and eventually the quantitative tightening. Quantitative tightening is the exact opposite of quantitative easing, that in that instead of the Federal Reserve um, kind of buying uh, securities, they sell securities. And so they ask dealers for bids instead of asking dealers for offers. And so during those periods, they actually were in the markets on a regular basis, but it wasn't to the extent that they're in there today. When the quantitative tightening, I think they might have sold once or twice a week. And so there would be two operations a week at, at most. Even during the quantitative tightening, I mean, quantitative easing, I think it was two operations a week. This one is just, this quantitative unlimited is 
completely and utterly unprecedented. Uh, like I'm counting it here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They have seven purchases per day of different securities. So this is much, much different. The virus was something that we've never seen before. And the Fed's reaction to the virus is something we've never seen before. What do you make of all this? Let's flip this to get a bit more of your actual perspective and your thoughts on what's taking place at the moment and I guess how this might play out a little bit. As you've said a couple of times, you know, it's uncharted territory. We've not seen something like this before. Yeah, what are you seeing? Well, I understand why the Fed's doing it. I, I, I'm sympathetic to it. And I think that they're doing the right thing. And, uh, and even if I didn't think they were doing the right thing, it doesn't matter what I think. You know, all that matters is what they're actually doing. I saw that the Bank of Canada the other day, uh, the, the governor of the Bank of Canada said something to the effect that some have suggested that he is using a lot of firepower. And then he says, a firefighter has never been criticized for using too much water. The central bankers of the world are rightfully scared about a shock to the system because this is something that's, you know, we basically shut off our economy for a month or could be two months or three months, who knows? So they are throwing everything they have at it. And whereas a lot of kind of market pundits will look at it and say, that's going to end badly. I think I'm going to short like S&Ps because it's going to, it's going to cause, you know, this thing's going to collapse in on itself. I'm more worried about the opposite. I'm more worried they're going to throw so much at this thing that it is going to ignite like a fireball. And I, I look at when we come on the other side of this, how they're going to unwind this is going to be very, very difficult. But I don't think they're worrying about that right now because there's just, this is a, this is a lot different than the 2008 crisis. In the 2008 crisis, it was um, a bunch of greedy banksters that had kind of gotten uh, over their skis and gotten into trouble. Now, eventually, it threatened to take down the whole system, and the central banks had to come to the rescue. But on the whole, they, they didn't really want to save the system. They wanted, the, they wanted it to cleanse out. They wanted to get Lehman to be taught a lesson. They wanted to have these things change. You know, they wanted the system to kind of delever because it was too levered up. In this case, this was an exogenous event that was really nobody's fault. And not only that, it's not some greedy banksters this time. It's, you know, everybody, including the mom and pops that, you know, had did nothing wrong. So when I look at the, the kind of central banks, they have the moral authority to do whatever it takes. And you'll see them saying that time and time again, we will do whatever it takes. And if there's one thing I would just kind of like to leave, you know, your listeners with, it's that. Don't forget that. They will continue to buy and, and support markets in whatever size is needed. And they, and they are not going to get scared off because it's a certain size. They are just going to keep standing in there and they're going to keep buying it. And if it ends up being that they own every you know, treasury on the market, so be it. One of the things you said to me uh, prior, to, prior to our call is that you'd like to speak about how we've never seen the government, I think it was the government and the Treasury, correct me if I'm wrong there, uh, working so closely together as they are at the moment. 
Is that something you'd like to speak to? Sure. Yeah. No, I'd love to I'd love to talk about that. I, I've I've contended that uh, Donald Trump was the most MMT president that we've ever had. Modern monetary theory, and what a modern monetary theory uh, kind of theorist believes is that the government is never constrained by um, financial constraints, meaning that the the people that tell you, oh, the government has a hundred percent of debt to GDP. They don't worry about that. They say that the government is only constrained by real resources. And what does that mean? It means that the government can keep spending until they reach a point where they use so much resources, real resources, that they cause inflation. And I've argued that Donald Trump is the most MMT president that we've ever had, even to the fact that you take like his, um, his stimulus plan he did a stimulus plan eight years into uh, economic expansion. Most Keynesians would tell you at that point that you should be trying to balance budgets, not Donald Trump. And when they asked him why, you know, he wanted the interest rates lower, and when they asked him why, if the economy is so good, why he wants interest rates lower, he says because there's no inflation, which is exactly what an mmt would say. So when we come to this point, we get to this, this kind of crisis that we're having from the virus. And a lot of kind of Austrians and, and hard money guys would say, well, the government can't be spending at this point because we don't have the balance sheet to do it. We're already indebted by whatever it is, and we don't want to be saddling our grandchildren with this debt. Well, that isn't happening here. The government is going and doing a, a kind of a fiscal stimulus or saving a fiscal kind of rescue package to the, to the tune of 10% of GDP. Japan is talking about doing 16% of GDP. So governments are spending like nobody's business, and, right, and rightfully so, because there's been a huge demand shock. And the, if you think about it, the Federal Reserve and other central banks are there to finance it. And if it comes down to the market is, ends up being worried about how much the government is spending, we could eventually hit a point where instead of the government issuing bonds and then the Fed buying them back through quantitative easing, we just get a situation where the Federal Reserve says we're going to you know, do $2 trillion of spending and the Fed's going to buy it all. Because if you think about the process that we're going about doing it, the, we go, the, federal, uh, the Treasury spends, they issue bonds, the public, uh, the primary dealers buy them. The public, you know, trades them, and then the then the treasury or the Federal Reserve buys them back. So we could just eliminate the middleman, and and that is one of the things that uh, will should give kind of the hard money guys shivers, and because eventually we're going to see a situation where that's occurring, and we've kind of gone through three decades or four decades of lower and lower inflation rates. And everybody thinks that we can't create inflation. And I argue that we, we can't create inflation because we keep relying on the private sector to try to create inflation, you know, through the banking system and through people taking out loans. Well, as we try to, as we saddle people with more and more debt, it becomes more and more difficult for them to, to take out even, you know, the incremental amount of debt ends up being more difficult. So they, they're kind of more hesitant. So eventually you get to a point where the private sector can't create inflation, which is basically what you're seeing in Europe. 
no matter how low you put rates, they don't respond. And in fact, you get to the point where you get into negative rates and the private sector, if you, as you send them lower, they become even less incentivized to actually go and, and take out loans because it ends up being, it's deflationary. So at that point, it's up to the government. And up, you know, up until now, most governments, apart from Donald Trump, have been reluctant to go and spend. You know, you see Germany trying to balance their budget and saying that Italy can't go and run a deficit. Even you see in your country, Aaron, you're, you're from Australia, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your latest guy up, up until before the forest fires, he was talking about running a balanced budget. And he was, he was trying to, he ran on, on trying to balance the budget. And that's starving the system of, of, of money and it, in an environment with private, limited private sector credit creation, it's kind of, you know, it's the formula for lower and lower interest rates. So I understand why people think that we can't make inflation, but what they fail to realize is that if the government goes and spends, they can do it whenever they want. I look back at history and I don't know a single country that has ever collapsed because of deflation but I know lots of countries that have collapsed because of inflation. And all you needed to do is have a change in attitude about government spending. And I think that you're going to find that we're going to be able to create the inflation that was so elusive. And this virus, I think, will prove to be the deflationary impulse that changes that attitude and encourages people to go and spend. And at first, it'll feel great, Aaron. I think that it'll do really well as the government spends and it'll be terrific. But like all things, they'll take it too far and we'll go through um, kind of uh, what'll feel great at the beginning will end up hurting at the end. But we're, we're miles away from that, though. I just wanted to say, I, I, I understand that that road is, uh, for the hard money people will say, like, that's a, that's a terrible road to go down because that's where we end up. And it doesn't even matter, you know, Aaron, if you and I think that's where we're going to end up. All I'm saying is that's where we're headed and I think that this virus has kind of cemented that that uh, path in front of us. Well, Kevin, I think this has been really insightful, certainly helped myself and I'm sure many people listening to this to understand some of these uh, subjects a little bit deeper uh, below the surface. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we uh, close things out here? No, uh, you know what, uh, Aaron, it's been a pleasure being on with you. I, I just want to say thank you for having me. And uh, I really enjoy your show. And I, and I think it's a, you do a terrific job and it's a great resource for traders alike. And uh, I just wanted to thank you for all the hard work you put into it. Uh, no trouble at all, man. <laughs> thank you um, again for, for coming back on. Anyone who's listening to this, if they'd like to follow along with your insights, I know there's a couple places they can do so. Uh, you have a podcast. Uh, you have a newsletter, uh, you're also reasonably active on Twitter. Um, do you want to share those few things? Sure. So on Twitter, it's at Kevin Muir, M-U-I-R. Uh, I write a letter and if you want to see an example of it, just uh, shoot me an email. It's it, the, the letter is called The Macro Tourist and uh, you can get it to it at themacrotourist.substack.com. Com, but send me an email at kevin at the macrotourist.com and I'll fire you off kind of a couple uh, latest kind of copies of the uh, different ed- uh, editions. And then finally, if you're interested, I do have a podcast. Uh, it's called The Market Huddle. It's a little more kind of laid back. It's a couple guys drinking beer and talking markets. And uh, you can get that at, at themarkethuddle.com. Cool. And you have a co-host on that podcast. Who's that? 
That's right. That's Patrick Ceresna. He, uh, we kind of, I laugh about it. He cheats on me. He also is on Macro Voices. <laughs> He's the co-host. <laughs> He's the co-host on Macro Voices. And then this is this is our fun thing that we do on the side. Is uh, we like to get different traders and drink some beer and uh, talk markets. Yeah, and if there's a one particular episode, um, you've been doing it for about a year and a half now. If there's one episode which people should start with or, or just check out to get a good idea on it. So previously, our most popular episode with this fellow by the name of Jimmy Jude, who is an ex-Merc um, uh, trader, like it's a Chicago Mercantile Exchange, we decided that he was so much fun and that the world could use a little bit of something to smile at that we brought him back this last week um, and he came back and it was a huge hit. So go check it out. It's Jimmy Jude, J-U-D-E, and uh, he's, he's just a blast and it's kind of a it's a great taste of uh, of what the show's like, and uh, I think you'll I think you'll enjoy it. And what episode number is that? Oh, I don't. You know what? You're putting me on the spot. I don't actually know. <laughs> I'll dig it up <laughs> and I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, that's terrific. It's uh, it's the one from uh, what we, March 27th. Okay, March 27th, 2020. Yes. Cool. That's right. All right, Kevin. Well, again, thank you very much for returning. It's been a Absolute pleasure to have you on again, and um, I'm sure we'll speak again um, before too long. Well, thanks for having me on, Aaron. It's a lot of fun. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.